So as we begin our study this morning, I want to point out a few things about um, the letter of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 19, we've discussed how the outline for this particular book can be found in verse 19. Uh, Jesus says to John, write down the things that you have seen, write down the things that are now, and write what will take place after these things, chapter 4 through 22. So we find ourselves in chapter 2 and 3, and we're really ending chapter 3 today speaking about Laodicea. And as we do that, I want to remind you that there are different ways to apply these letters. Obviously, the first and foremost would be, how does this apply to me? Um, but the other thing we need to think about is the historical context. The reality is, these were seven literal churches in the days of the Apostle John. And as he's receiving this vision, he's going to send this letter out to these seven churches for specific instruction for them in those days in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But historically speaking, these seven letters are prophetic in that they describe seven periods of church history, many of which have already taken place and have already come to pass. But today we find ourselves in the church at Laodicea, which I believe describes this postmodern age that we live in right now. The age of higher criticism, the age of questioning if we can literally take the scriptures literal. And at the same time, uh, haven't we grown past fairy tales? Don't we know things from science? Don't we know how the world works based on our own understanding? Haven't we grown past these things that really are ancient and outdated? Uh, that's a question that postmodern age asks. Does scripture really have any authority? Uh, is it really true? Who really wrote the first five books of the Bible? Who really wrote Isaiah? Some higher critics would say that Isaiah was actually written by three different authors, and yet Jesus says about those the letter of or the the prophecy of Isaiah, he ascribes it all to the same Isaiah. And so postmodernism causes us to question what is truth anyway? Are things really black and white? Can we be so sure about things that are, in our minds, arguable? The funny thing about postmodernism is it actually not only questions everybody else that says that something is true or it is not, but it also questions itself. See, by making the statement that the things aren't really black and white and we can't really know truth and everything's abstract and it's not necessarily concrete, is to say that their statement that things aren't really black and white it can be questioned. And so what is truth? So we're going to get into that today. But in chapter 4 through 5, as we continue next week, um, it will actually describe what it's like for believers in heaven. And then in chapter 6 through 19, which is the bulk of the book of Revelation, it will describe the world as it goes through the great tribulation, uh, a tribulation like the world has never seen. And so let's talk about Laodicea. As we've been studying these books or these letters to the seven churches, we've seen uh, the context matters just as much as what Jesus has to say. So many believe that the church at Laodicea was began by a, uh, being a church plant from the Colossian church, which was about six to ten miles to the west. 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, it's mentioned three times in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, this church is about 30 miles southeast of Philadelphia. I have there for you on the map. It's the last church in this uh, heavenly mail route. Jesus has already speak, spoken to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia last week, and this week, Laodicea. Now, Laodicea is a church, uh, is a city that's part of a tri-city area. And so there's three cities really close. Uh, for us here in Arcadia Valley, you might look at it this way. We have Ironton as the county seat which Laodicea was the kind of the, the important city in the area. It was the chief among those cities. We have Hierapolis and Colossae. So essentially it would be like Arcadia, Pilot Knob, and Ironton in the middle. Uh, but that being said, the area was known for black wool, Phrygian powder, which is a special eye lotion that was only found in this area and made in this area, and its affluence or its great wealth. So it, it was known for what they had. And uh, so let's talk about what they had. Uh, they had wealth. And I tell you what, in this world, when we have wealth, we think we really got something. But they had wealth from banking. Uh, this was the financial headquarters for their entire area, this region of the empire they were a part of. Um, they also had textiles and fashion. They had these specific, very special black sheep. Now, in our day, we say somebody's a black sheep. They don't, they don't really, you know, they're, they're kind of the oddball. But in this region, everybody wanted the black wool that came from these sheep because they could dress all in black. And even today, dressing in black is kind of a stylish thing. It's slimming, it's fashionable, it, you know, but for them... Um, they were the only ones that had these particular sheep. There were other herds that had black sheep kind of mixed in, but they had these particular sheep that only had black wool. And, you know, partially because they had very fertile land and pastures, but partially just because this is the only area those sheep were common. Um, they were also wealthy because they were a medical center, and their specialty was ophthalmology. So they had this special eye medicine from a local oil that was mixed together with a local colander seed, and it became like a powder. And this powder was so famous and so world-renowned that even Aristotle mentions this particular medicine in his writings. So they had much, and to whom much is given, much is required, right? But because of their wealth, because of their affluence, their whole society was centered on comfort, pleasure, and entertainment. And if you took a tour right now of the ruins of this city, uh, you wouldn't find just one theater, you would find many theaters. You wouldn't just find one gymnasium, you'd find many gymnasiums. Uh, they had steam bathhouses where you could go and essentially go to a spa. They had shops and stores everywhere, which implies they had lots of time to use these places. Otherwise, as we know, they would close down. And so a very affluent area, and this is what they had. But here's what they lacked. Of all the affluence, all the money, they didn't have water. And so in order to get water, 
They had to go to alternate sources. Now, we talked about Hierapolis and Colossae. And I want to show you a picture. I've got a map here. We've got Laodicea there in the uh, southernmost. But then if you go to the west, or excuse me, I said west earlier. I meant east. You go to the east, following the Lycus River Valley, you come to the city of Colossae which in Paul's day had actually diminished quite a bit. They were less of an uh, important city, um, but there was a Christian remnant there that we believe that actually planted the Laodicean church, possibly. But if you go to the north from Laodicea, you see there Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, there was something pretty cool there. They had hot springs. Now, even in our nation, we have places that, like Little Rock, Arkansas, I think, has hot springs where people go and they rest and they bathe in the waters. It actually is supposed to bring healing, and obviously it's comfortable. We build hot, house, hot tubs in our own houses if we can. And so they did two things. And then in Colossae, the picture on the bottom there, they had these cold waters that would melt from ice caps on top of the mountains, they would rush down in streams, and they would land in these pools, and these pools would be filled with ice-cold, refreshing water. So if you're Laodicea, and you've got all this money, and what you don't have, you just buy, kind of similar to us. If we don't have what we need, we go on Amazon Prime, we get free shipping in two days, and we got it now. Well, they didn't have two-day shipping, but they did have the amount of money that it took to try to pipe steaming hot water from Hierapolis and refreshing cold water from Colossae. But the problem with that is that they were six miles away. So even the, even the person that doesn't quite understand thermodynamics knows that if you have steaming 95-degree hot water and you want to pipe it six miles away, by the time it arrives to its said location in Laodicea, what do you think the temperature was? lukewarm. But then you have the nice, cold, refreshing water from the, the side mountains of Colossae, and they are, they also built an aqueduct from both of these places underground. Can you imagine the amount of money that would take? And put it into pipes, send it all the way to Laodicea, and by the time that cold water arrives in the pipes you see there on the picture, uh, what do you end up with? Lukewarm water. And so uh, apparently they didn't understand thermodynamics or they had more money than brains. We don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that when the water arrived from both locations, it was lukewarm and it was dirty. It was full of mineral deposits that were very, very thick and perhaps even full of bacteria. So what we know about this is that they didn't have water. They got water and it wasn't what they wanted. What else did they lack? Let's talk about it. Uh, they lacked defenses. As a city, unlike these other cities we've studied in the chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, this city had no natural defenses. They weren't built up on a high rock. They weren't surrounded by uh, rocks. They weren't surrounded by walls. They were vulnerable on all sides. They didn't even have a military strategy for protection. But they did have a defense strategy. <laughs> Their defense strategy was to be cultural chameleons. By the way, this is no defense strategy. This just lets everything come in 
and you no longer get to be who you are as a people. Your cultural identity is fluid all the time, and you kind of forget where you came from. So whatever culture threatened them, they compromised. They took all of their family values and said, you know what, that doesn't matter that much. I'd rather stay alive. Interestingly enough, I was thinking about a passage in Job chapter 2, verse 4, just yesterday. And Satan said, as he's getting ready to tempt Job to reject God, he says, skin for skin, speaking to God, a man will give anything in his life in order to preserve his life. And if that doesn't describe the time that we're in right now, I don't know what does. But in this case, in the Laodicean church, he says, whatever, it says whatever culture threatened them, they compromised in order to avoid fight or a loss of life. And the church, unfortunately, in that time, had adopted the same lifestyle. So they lacked defenses, and they lacked humility. The other thing they lacked was humility. Interestingly enough, if you remember our study in the beginning of chapter 2 of Revelation, there was something that he liked about that church was that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitan, the word there means Nico, Nike, to conquer. Laetan means the people or the laity. Well, this was a problem in Ephesus. There were people there that were trying to conquer the common people, and they hated their deeds. But in this case, their name, the church's name, was Laodicea, and Leo means the people still, laity. Decian means rule or decide, to rule over oneself. And so the people rule, the people decide. So think about this. They were seeker sensitive. They paid attention to the needs of their culture and they let the people decide. And because they let the people decide, uh, the people said, tell me what I want to hear or I won't listen. And Paul wrote to Timothy, said, in the last days, the people will heap up, they'll have itching ears, and they'll pile up teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And the love of many will grow cold. And so because of that, um, this people were a people getting ready to wipe out. They didn't have any water, they didn't have any defenses, and they were very prideful. And so Jesus, in the midst of this culture, reveals himself to them. So as we begin in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. Now, before I rush forward, I want to point out what it says there. You might underline this in your Bible. It says, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Well, turn back with me to verse 7. And in that letter to the Philadelphia church, he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and right before that in verse 1 of chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Sardis, and you can keep going through chapter 2, but in this it says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. This is not the church of Jesus. This is the church of the Laodiceans. Christ isn't the head of this church. He's kind of something they might pay homage to, but it's not in reality. He's not Lord over this church. Just an interesting thought. Am I Christ's? Am I his disciple? Do I call myself a Christian, or would I say I'm the church of Mike, 
Would I say I'm the church of A.V. Chapel? Would I say I'm the church of whatever it is? Am I a Christian church or am I an American church? Am I a Chinese church? Am I a Japanese church? Or is Christ all and in all and Lord over my church, over me? Is he Lord over me? Is he Lord over you? So he says, to the church of the Laodiceans, these things says, verse 14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says, these things I say, the amen, so be it. Amen means so be it. I agree. Uh, It also means I am the final word. This is black and white. It's either true or it isn't. So he says, these things says the amen. Now the word there means the, as in singular. So this is true, whether or not you want it to be true, it's true. He says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. Now it's interesting, he says, the faithful witness, the true witness. Singular not only implies singular, but it also implies only, the only faithful one, the only amen, the only witness. What is truth? You know, the Pontius Pilate asked Jesus this question. You know, Jesus is being, getting ready to be not only accused, but then crucified for claiming to be God. He's handed over uh, to Pontius Pilate for judgment And then in John chapter 18, in verse 33, Pontius Pilate asks him some questions. He says there, in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me, what have you done? And Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered and said, you say rightly that I am king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. And so Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And yet Jesus, the truth, the person, is sitting right in front of them. If you want to know what the truth is, what it's all about, The reality is this life is not about what you think it is. It's about him. It's about Jesus. And Jesus even spoke to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 6, and he said to them, I am the only way. I am the only truth, and I am the only life. And then he also says back there in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, I am the one who's speaking to you. I am the beginning of of the creation of God, the beginning. Now, many would read this and they would say, well, what he's saying there is that he was the first creation of God. 
And that's where the cults get it all incorrectly. They say that Jesus wasn't, in fact, God, but he was actually the son of God, the first creation of God. And yet, when we find out from the word, the origin there, the beginning means origin in the Greek, not the first created one, but the only one that existed before creation. And so in John chapter 1, we get an echo from Genesis. I'm going to turn to John, but I'm going to mention Genesis because the first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Now we continue and think, in the beginning, God created, and he did. But before you go to the word created, the verb, it just says, in the beginning, God, which implies his existence before he began creating. And so as we see that in Genesis 1, we also see it in John 1, where the apostle John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God and was God. These are both together true. They don't disagree with one another. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, implying that everything that was created, none of it was made without him, implying that he already existed before even time existed. Now, back to Revelation chapter 3. After Jesus reveals himself to them, He points out the things that he knows about them. Verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, think about this. Let's think about Laodicea. Think about the guy that said, you know what? I just got back from a trip to Hierapolis and I've been to Colossae. They've got cold water in Colossae. I would love to have cold water to drink with my dinner. And I would love to have the hot bath that they have in Hierapolis. I mean, who wouldn't want those kind of creature comforts? I've got enough money. I've got the engineers. I've got the people that can dig. I'm going to foot the bill so that we can pipe those things in. Think about the revenue that will increase. Think about the tourism. Think about just, it's going to cost a lot of money up front, but there will be dividends paid. And so he puts the money forward. He gets all the right people together, and they start building these aqueducts. Think about how long it would take today to put six miles of pipe in the ground. And so they do all this work. They hook it up. Uh, They don't have walkie-talkie, so they send the guy six miles and go, turn on the valve. And they release the water through the pipe. They take the six-mile journey back. They do that in Colossae as well. They get done with the project. They turn on the water. The investors are all standing there. The water flows finally six miles, and it gets there, and it's not hot. It's not cold. Can you imagine the person that paid the money to make that happen? It would make you want to throw up. Just the fact that all the investment, all the time, all the energy, and then the water comes out, and it's not what you wanted. It's lukewarm, just like the water you already have at your town. Now, think about that in the terms of Jesus. 
He has paid the price for our salvation. He has made it possible for mankind who is broken, sinful, in need of a Savior to be in fellowship with him once again despite his sin. And then he pours this living water into these pipes. By the way, you and I are the pipes. We're the conduit. And yet, because of our long suffering that we need and because of the unwillingness that we have to let him just flow through us we try to do all kinds of stuff to add to salvation and yet by the time the water comes out it's not living water anymore it's stagnant it's lukewarm and it's full of bacteria it's not good it's actually poisonous and and it makes me think there are three different temperatures of water in the Bible. There's three different temperatures for Christians in the Bible. And if you look at Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up after the Holy Spirit is poured out. They have tongues of fire. They're proclaiming the goodness of God. They're proclaiming the salvation that Jesus paid the way for. And then in chapter 2 verse 41, after he gets done preaching, 3,000 people are saved because Peter is on fire. He's hot with the message of God. And because of that, salvation is brought forth. And then Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, he appears to two disciples who are walking to Emmaus, and he starts to talk to them. And they say, don't you know what's going on? And he begins to explain to them how all of the Old Testament points to Jesus and explains that all these Old Testament veiled passages, he unveils them and shows that Jesus was in each peace and portion. And then as he does that, they finally come to a stopping point on their long journey. They sit down and they said, let's eat together. And as they're getting ready to eat, Jesus breaks the bread and gives thanks for it. He hands them the cup and gives thanks for it. And all of a sudden their eyes are open. They realize the whole time that they've been walking, they've been walking with Jesus. And they say to each other, were not our hearts on fire while he explained to us the scriptures and showed us the Savior? They were on fire. And so they, they depart from there and they go back to the city from where they were coming and they tell all the other disciples, Jesus appeared to us and he exposed the scriptures to us. This is how it was supposed to come to pass, our salvation. He's the Messiah. My point is that when our hearts are hot, when they're on fire, God can use us. And yet when they're cold, God can break us. Think about the apostle, Paul, who began as the rabbi, Saul. He was so cold towards Jesus, calling him a blasphemer. He was even there on the day of the stoning of Stephen. He was so angry about Jesus. He was cold towards him that he was holding the coats of those who were killing Stephen, who had just testified just like Peter did. And yet the rabbi Saul was not quenched in his coldness. He wanted to stop everybody that was proclaiming the name of Jesus. So he gets letters from the priests. He gets on the road to Damascus. And on his way, Jesus meets with him and knocks him down. He's cold, but God can still reach him. He knocks him down and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And then he says to him, 
I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. And Rabbi Saul says, what do you want me to do, Lord? He's submissive. So he turns around and he he basically has to be led to this different city in order to be impacted by this Christian that's there, Ananias. But my point is, when we're hot, God can use us. When we're cold, God can break us. But there's one other temperature called lukewarm. And what Jesus says to them is, since you're lukewarm, I want to spew you out of my mouth. That's not a good spot to be in. But the word spew, or in my Bible, vomit, is the word that's used to describe when someone swallows poison that will kill them. Back in the day, it was called Ipecac. You'd give Ipecac to somebody, they would take a little bit of it, and it would actually cause them to vomit out the contents of their stomach. I don't even think it's ADA approved anymore, or uh, not ADA, what's it called? Anyway, it's not approved anymore. Uh, From what I read on the internet, people don't recommend using it unless it's under direct supervision of the hospital. But that said, you would take this medicine in order to get poison out of your body before it's digested and it kills you. So Jesus says, um, because you're lukewarm, because you're not hot or cold, you're actually dangerous. You're more dangerous to yourself and to the world being lukewarm as a believer than you are hot or cold. And so he says, I'd rather you be vomited out of my mouth. So in verse 17, he opens their eyes to their spiritual condition. Verse 17, he says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, because you say, I'm rich. Because you say, I've made myself wealthy. That's pride. Because you say, I don't really need anything. (laughs) You're in a bad spot. Because you think you are something that you're actually not. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, I have there for you, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that. Poor in spirit is not what we shoot for. And yet what God says, when we're prideful, when we're haughty, we actually can't see things clearly. But when we recognize our poverty of spirit, that's when we actually are able and open to obtaining the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Because they think we know how we actually stand with God, it actually means that they're blind to the spiritual reality that they're lost. He says to them, Because you say that you are these things, uh, I am going to have to tell you, because I love you, you're actually wretched. You're actually miserable. You're actually poor, blind, and naked. Think about that. The nakedness in the Garden of Eden, when they, they, they disobeyed God, they ate of the fruit, and then because of that, what was their first response? They hid from God because they recognized that they were naked. And so, interestingly enough, he says, you're actually wretched, even though they thought, hey, we're rich, we're great, we're wealthy. You're miserable. You're poor, blind, and naked. Now, think about this. We talked about what they had. They had wealth, right? They had commerce. They were the bank. 
Uh, but he says, you're rich. You think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You're trusting in riches, and that really makes you poor in the kingdom of heaven. He says, you're blind. Now think about that. They have this eye salve that no one else in the world has. They're famous for it. And yet he says to them that have the cure for eye disease, you can't see. You're blind. You can't see things for what they really are. And then he says, you're naked. Interestingly enough, they were well known for their clothing industry. They thought that they were clothed because they had the greatest brand, because they had the stylist, that they were the most stylish in their day. And yet what he says to them is, uh, you're actually naked. And when you're naked, you haven't covered your shame. Interestingly enough, Jesus loves them too much to let them remain in their current state. And the word of God described in Hebrews, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God, Jesus Christ, is always faithful to expose us for who we really are. In verse 12 of chapter 4, it says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account to. So the word of God exposes our nakedness. It exposes our wretchedness. It exposes our miserable condition without Christ being the one that covers. But he has no desire to leave us exposed and ashamed and naked. While he does expose us, it's not to make us ashamed. It's actually to help us get closer to the response that we need to have and his solution for our nakedness. So if you turn with me to verse 18, he says, I counsel you. He says, because you say you're okay, you're in a bad spot because you're actually not okay. But because you're not okay, and I've just told this to you, now I want to give you the solution. I want to counsel you that you don't have to be left in this position. I counsel you, he says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may be able to see. And then in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So Jesus, the word of God, he doesn't only expose them, but now the word of God. And as you're sitting in your homes, what I want you to know is that the word of God is more than just words to read. The word of God is living. The word of God is meant to expose you. You don't need a pastor to do that. One of the things that churches around the world are saying right now that they were not equipping their people to feed themselves the word of God. So right now, I want to stop and take a moment and tell you that as you read the Bible, it's not meant to expose Jesus, although it does reveal Jesus to you. It is meant to expose Jesus to you, but it's also meant to expose you to you. In the light of what he sees, he's going to expose your heart. The psalmist David said, search my heart, Lord. 
Know me. See if there be any wicked way in me and expose my heart to me because we don't know our own hearts. So Jesus, the word of God, exposes our hearts, but now we see in verse 18, he desires to counsel our hearts. He desires to conform us into his image, to change us from a sinful human being into a life-giving source of life as we're plugged into him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, what we find out is that God's word instructs the Christian God's word rebukes us. God's word corrects us. God's word trains and equips us if we're willing to be instructed. If we're willing to say, I don't know what I need to know. Instruct me, Lord. If we're willing to say, I don't know if I'm in the right spot. Rebuke me, Lord. If we're willing to say, I need corrected, please correct me, Lord. If we approach him in humility, then he gives us everything we need according to life and godliness in the person of his son. His word is sufficient. First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says that his word is sufficient to teach us about him, remind us of his promises, and impart to us his divine nature, and then to set us apart from the corruption that's in the world so that we can be used by him. And so he counsels them with three ways. He says, buy from me refined gold so that you can be rich. Now, can we buy anything from God? Do we have any currency that he needs? No. He says, buy from me white garments to clothe your nakedness. Is he talking about clothes? Obviously not. They had clothes. He says, buy from me eye salve so that you may be able to truly see your spiritual state. Well, let's start with the gold. What is gold? What's he talking about? What's Jesus revealed to us about gold? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. 1 Peter, it's after James. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He's already said in verse 3, God is blessed, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, we've been given an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. Can't be taken from us. It's actually reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Why? Because we've been born again. We've been guaranteed salvation. We've been given an inheritance that can't be taken. It's reserved for us in heaven. And we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed. He's going to save us from this life. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, and we should. But then he says, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, if that doesn't speak to today, I don't know what does. God has saved you. He's keeping you. He's given you an inheritance. And yet now we don't fully experience that salvation until we're with him face to face. But if need be, 
for a little while, a short time period in the scheme of eternity, you have been, you are being grieved by various trials, but there's a purpose for those trials. There's a purpose for what's going on right now that's beyond even the government's control, that's beyond our control. God is in control, and in this circumstance, we can either pray, God, take it away, or we can pray, God, take me through it. What this says in 1 Peter is that if we'll pray, God, take me through it, you have allowed a trial. Why? Maybe you're asking that. And I want to take you to verse 7. He says there that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that will perish, though it's tested by fire, that the genuineness of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That your faith will be refined through trials and it's more precious to God, your faith, in him is more precious to God, and it should be to you, than gold and silver and precious stones that will perish. There's a purpose for trials. He says, buy from me gold that's been refined in the fire. What is gold refined in the fire? It's faith. And it's only something that he can give you when you are stretched beyond what you can do on your own. That's where we find ourselves. He says, buy from me gold, excuse me, white garments to clothe your nakedness. They thought they were clothed. They thought they had no need of anything. They had all they needed. As a nation, we felt that way for a very long time. And yet he says, buy from me white garments. Now they're sheep that they got all their cool clothing from. Was it white? No, it was black. Is he talking about clothing color? No, he's talking about purity, pure garments. Don't cover your shame with something that's not pure. Cover your shame with something that I can give you. Isaiah chapter 61. Turn there with me. I'm going to turn there slowly because I'm not very good at this and my hands are cold. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. Isaiah writes there in his prophecy, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why is this person grateful? Why are they rejoicing? Why are they joyful in God? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. For he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Not only clothed, but clothed for a day of a wedding, a joyous occasion, like a bride waiting for her groom, preparing. And yet he says here, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will re greatly rejoice in his covering, for he has clothed me. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Not just robes of stylishness, robes of righteousness. Only he can give. And then he says, by eye salve, so that you can actually see. Ephesians chapter 1. So we turn there. This eye salve that they would use was uh, a mix of oil and a mix of this 
powder when these colander seeds were all ground up. Now, think about this and parallel it with the blind man who came to Jesus. The blind man came to Jesus, and Jesus spat in the dirt. Now, I don't know about you guys, but spit mixed with dirt makes what? Mud. Mud pies. And he rubbed it on the guy's eyes. What does dirt in your eye do? It irritates it. What do you think oil and seed do in your eye? What does anything do in your eye? It irritates it. So Jesus takes this mud that he's made from his spit and from dirt, and he rubs it in the eye of this blind man. He irritates it. He throws dirt in your eye. No ophthalmologist would put dirt in your eye unless there was a purpose. Well, he tells him, now that I've rubbed dirt in your eye, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go wash in the still waters. What are those waters to symbolize? The water that comes up, welling up. The spirit, out of this spring will spring living waters. Rest beside those waters. Let those waters refresh you. So what they would do with this eye salve is they would put it on the eye of the patient and the patient would let it sit there and irritate the eye, causing it to leak and put tears forth. And then you would wash it out and it would help you see better. And that's what we need. Turn with me to John chapter 9 in verse 35. Another blind man has been healed by Jesus. John chapter 9, verse 35. And of course, what happened every time that Jesus would heal someone is that the Pharisees or somebody that thought they knew what God does and doesn't do would get mad at him because he either healed them on the Sabbath or didn't heal them the right way. And yet, here's what happened. Jesus had healed this man's eyesight, right? Healed his eyesight, miraculous in and of itself. But there was a problem. This man still needed to see Jesus clearly. Not just to see life clearly and be able to see physically. He needed to have his eyes open spiritually. In John chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He's asking this man that was healed from blindness. He said, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are you saying we're blind also? They were saying, hey, we can see physically. Are you, seeing, are you implying that we're blind spiritually? And Jesus says to them the same thing that he's saying to the church at Laodicea. If you were blind, you would have no sin. He says, but now you say we can see. Therefore, your sin remains. So the Pharisees said, hey, we, we see things clearly. And Jesus says, because you say that I am rich, because I have need of nothing, because I've made myself rich, therefore you're blind, you're naked, and you're poor. 
So the question is, what do we think about ourselves? Do we think that we're blind, naked, and poor? And the question that I came up with at the end of this is, why does Jesus even speak to these guys at all? Why does he speak to the Pharisees? Why does he speak to this group that's questioning him all the time? Why does he speak to the Laodiceans who think that they're something even though they're not? And really the question becomes, why does he speak to me? Why would a perfect, completely whole, awesome and mighty God, full of love, full of power, why would he speak to me? And I would submit to you because he loves them. Verse 19, he says, As many as I love, those I rebuke and chasten. He says, Therefore be zealous and repent. Receive my correction and repent. And then he says an odd thing in verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Interesting, because if you've seen this painting, and if you've been in church culture, if you've been in an old church, you've seen the painting that's very famous. I forget who painted it, but it's Jesus outside of this door, and he's knocking on it very politely. And yet, many have surmised that that painting was done incorrectly because there's no door handle on the door. But what the painter said about it is that the door handle is only on the inside and Jesus is knocking on the door because he doesn't force his way in. He gives us the invitation that he wants to come in and sup with us or eat dinner with us. And yet, interestingly enough, he doesn't force his way in. He doesn't force himself on anybody. And many people use this passage to say that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. You need to be saved. But I would submit to you that when Jesus is knocking on the heart, he's not knocking on the heart. He's speaking to the church. He's knocking on the door of the church and he's saying, let me in and I want to spend time with you. Because the word there for dine or sup is diipnine, which was not the breakfast where they would usually take a piece of bread, they'd dip it in some wine or grape juice, and they'd eat it, and they'd go about their day. It wasn't lunch where they would eat something really quick and go back to work. It was dinner, and in those days, sup was the evening meal. It was the main meal of the day. It was a meal that was lingered about. After a hard day was done, all, there was nothing to go to after that. They would spend a long time at the table just eating and talking and sharing life. Christ desires no hurried meal with you and I. He desires a lingering, joy-filled fellowship with us. And I would submit to you, it's not even the dinner that we have now. He's looking forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will all be brought up. We're already engaged. We're already betrothed to Christ But if anyone will let him in, in this day and age, before we go to heaven, he wants to sup with you. He wants to spend time with you. You have more time, many of you, not all of you, than you've ever had. Jesus wants to spend that time with you, not with others, not with everyone. He's giving you time like we've never had to just be with him. Do you want that? 
He wants to linger in fellowship with you. He wants you to meditate on his word and let you speak to him, to expose you, to counsel you. But he also, verse 21, is looking forward to introduce us to his father. He says there in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He wants us to rule and reign with him, but he also, I think he's excited to introduce us to the one who sent him in the first place. Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but he was sent by who? To reconcile us to who? Who was sent by the Father? To reconcile us to the Father. And as he overcame and sits down with his Father now, he wants us to join them also. John chapter 14, verse 23, and then we're done, I promise. John chapter 14, and verse 23, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. I'm looking forward to that. So as we close, I want you to think about this. Are you coming to, let's just pray. Father, I just confess to you that many times I come thinking that I have what I need, that I've made myself rich, thinking that I have all that I need, and yet, Everything that I need is, is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And I know that I, I'm not the only one. So, Father, you've come to us like you came to the Laodiceans. You stand at the door and knock, and the question becomes, will we open up and let you in to linger with us today? Or will we rush on to the next thing? Father, we need you. In this day and age, we need you even more than we realized before. But that hasn't changed. We've needed you before, and now we're just able to see it more clearly. So I thank you for this timely word, and I pray that as we think about where we really stand with you, that we would not fall to the temptation to believe that we have all that we need, but that we would recognize that we don't have what we need, that you do that we would come to you, the fountain of life, the fountain of truth, and confess our need to you and be filled with your Holy Spirit and be prepared for the reunion between us and your Father and you, and that we would look forward to that glorious inheritance that you've maintained for us, that is kept for us. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. Would you bless each family as they take opportunity to spend time with you, as they take opportunity to spend time in your word? Would there be repentance, zealous repentance on our self-reliance, Lord? Oh, how we need you and how, how we've given ourselves wholly to trusting in our own understanding. Forgive us, Lord. Would you make us new? Would you bring us back to the fountain that cannot run dry, that will not run dry, and cause us to walk in new dependence upon you 
in these days that we live in. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love that exposes us for who we are. Lord, would you counsel us now and what each one of us specifically needs. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we stop, I want to make sure that you know that there's a video for a closing song of worship. So I encourage